Welcome to the Birth Lounge Podcast, an empowering space for expecting and new parents to hear candid conversations with experts, support your mental health, and learn the tips and tricks that thousands of parents have used to craft their ideal birth. We will answer all of your questions, the scary ones and the weird ones, to help calm your fears and feel confident going into your birth. I'm going to help you redefine what birth and motherhood looks like and how to embrace your journey. I've intentionally crafted an amazing list of experts to help you navigate pregnancy, explore your birth options, and plan for postpartum so it can be a time of soaking in your tiny human. We're going to go there on all the hard topics so that you can dive into finding your confidence and freeing yourself from fears around childbirth. With almost 10 years of experience in family education and a master's degree in human development and family studies, I created this podcast as a way to share information so parents can make educated and informed decisions about their care during pregnancy and childbirth. This is a birth community driven by evidence-based information and research in hopes to help you explore your options, understand your rights, and know what choices you have along the way. I'm your host, Hee Hee. Now let's get to the good stuff. Hey, y'all, and welcome back to another episode of the Birth Launch Podcast. Today, I'm so excited to have my friend, Nurse Becky, on. You can find her on Instagram at Nurse Becky. She is a registered nurse. She's an IBCLC. She's going to be a midwife really soon. And today, we're talking about trauma-informed breastfeeding support in the hospital. Now, this if you're pregnant, you've never had a baby, you're probably like, what the heck? Why do we want to talk about this? And if you have had a baby, you're probably like, Wow, I wish I had this conversation before I had my last baby. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, sometimes, a lot of times, many times in the hospital, lactation support can be kind of spotty. Sometimes it's a little aggressive. Very few times is it actually trauma informed. And for me, this is a lot of places where new parents find themselves kind of questioning themselves, feeling like they're not having a lot of support and, or the support that they do get, it makes them feel really bad about themselves, their milk supply, their baby, just them as a parent. And so I wanted to have nurse Becky on the show today to talk about a, what can we do before your baby gets here to kind of set you up for good, solid breastfeeding support in the hospital. And B, if you find yourself in a place where you have support that maybe is not aligned to you. What options do you have? What kind of control do you have? How can you get yourself out of that situation and get some good solid breastfeeding support in there? So Becky, welcome to the show. Please Thank you so much. Away. I'm so excited to hear everything in your brain yes. and know that people are like really dying for this information because this is a hard place to find yourself right after you have a baby. Yeah, absolutely. I have so much to say. I'll try to like keep my thoughts organized because, you know, I have so much to say. Anyways, I think the first thing first, when you become pregnant, it's really important that it's easy to just fall into the trap of just listening to your provider and, and just kind of doing whatever they say. But I think we have to put the power in our hands and engage in, in our pregnancy as you're preparing for birth setting yourself up for success. And I could go into the barriers and, you know, the financial barriers, the, the location barriers of how that can be really difficult. But the beauty of the internet is there's a lot of free information out there. I really want to empower people who are pregnant and preparing for birth or, you know, even same-sex couples and, you know, people that are using surrogate or adoption to really look into their options as far as feeding their babies. Cause there are lots of options, even if you aren't the carrier of that baby to yep. 
even lactate. So that's another topic for another day, but yes, putting the power into our hands, as far as doing our own research, utilize what information that you can learn about prior to giving birth. And that's as simple as like learning about what colostrum is, which is the first milk that your body starts making whenever you're 16 weeks pregnant. And like the importance of colostrum, the importance of skin to skin, at least for an hour immediately after birth and not allowing, as long as baby's stable, getting the baby taken from you to do the weight and the vitamin K and the erythromycin, whatever you you choose your child to have, really getting that golden hour, which we call it of skin to skin, allowing that baby to breast crawl and hand expression. I am obsessed with hand expression. It's like kind of weird that I love hand expression, but I love hand expression. Like I could talk about hand expression for probably two weeks. I could do an entire three credit college course on hand expression. I'm sure but <laughs> you could do hand expression. And while you're still pregnant, if you're like dying, as long as you're are low risk and have no issues and you're over 38 weeks, I tell every pregnant person to start hand expressing. It's a great way to have your body start having some Braxton Hicks and practice contractions with that oxytocin coming from your nipples and the nipple stem and And then you can save that colostrum. You can get some, some syringes off the internet or getting those little Haka colostrum collectors and start collecting colostrum while you're still pregnant. So if there are any feeding issues, you do not have to run to formula. You can literally say, Hey, I have this bag of colostrum. I collected when I was still pregnant. Can you keep this in the fridge or keep this in the freezer? If you're in the hospital, or even if you're at home, you can just keep it in the fridge or freezer and pop it out, warm it up in like a mug of hot water, or if they have a bottle warmer and then give it to your baby. There's so much information that you can utilize and education that you can, you know, have prior to giving birth to help breastfeeding work and chest feeding and pumping, whatever you choose to do for your baby. I have a question before we move on. What if you run into the issue where your hospital says something about they're not going to allow you to give your baby colostrum or that they really advise you to give formula over colostrum? It doesn't happen often, but we have had a handful Mm. of people run into providers who have, in my mind, that's misinformation. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a study that just came out, I would say within the year that talks about the metabolic effects of giving formula. And I would say in my experience, the busiest reason that formula supplementation is needed is because of low blood sugar in a baby for whatever reason, if they're small, they're over four kilograms, they, their parent had gestational diabetes, whatever. And then we run to formula if skin to skin and the baby's like the latching is happening, but the, you know, the blood sugar isn't coming up or what I have, what have you, but actually the more formula we give, the higher, the spike of the blood sugar, and then the more at risk of like them, it's basically like a sugar high and then they drop a sugar high and then they drop. And then the body starts having this like metabolic need for more sugar. Right. So if we can introduce expressed milk, express colostrum sooner, that's going to stabilize blood sugars. And then not allow this to happen, right? The up and the and the down. So I think that's so important is like having providers that are informed. And at the end of the day, like even though it's really freaking scary, you're the parent. You can say, like, no, I've done my research. I have, you know, I have colostrum, I have expressed milk. I want to give that to my baby. And I don't want to be sitting here saying formula is bad because formula was invented to save babies that weren't able to be fed by their parents. Definitely. But we have like resources to use prior to getting that far. But if a parent doesn't have expressible colostrum, the baby has a severe low blood sugar that's requiring supplementation. 
then that gets to the point of like, I wish everyone had access to donor milk because that is so important. I understand that donor milk is mostly in the NICU because they're more at risk, but even full-term babies that just need a little bit of help, they deserve donor milk too. And so I could preach to the choir about that, but of course there is always a purpose of formula if it's needed, but there are steps that we can take to really promote using our own milk or human milk prior to that step. So I just think, I know it can be scary because it'd be very intimidating and then nurses and doctors and providers in general can instill fear and practice with fear to the parents. So I think it's just important to even having that conversation with the team. If a person is gestational diabetic, or they feel like their baby is measuring big, like, Hey, I know my baby's probably going to have blood sugars taken. This is my plan. These are my thoughts prior to even delivering, you know, prior to even having your baby. So I think it's just like having those, like a game plan with your team. And also if you have a team, that's not going to listen to you. Like you need to find another, another team. I agree with that hundred percent. And you know, ACOG even does state that the parent has the right to disagree with their provider and choose yeah. something that's different than what your provider is suggesting to you, even if it puts you or your baby at harm, which no parent would ever want that. Right. But I think exactly. it's really comforting to know that ACOG supports you making your own decision, regardless of what your medical professionals are providing to you because you are the parent. So yes, mm-hmm. it's scary, but that is your radical responsibility of being that baby's parent is you get to choose what feels most aligned to Mm -hmm. you. I think it comes down to like a patient centered shared decision-making approach. So rather than having, you know, whatever you say, doctor, whatever you say, like, I'll do whatever you say. It's more like, okay, no, these are the benefits and these are the risks of whatever we're talking about. And I want you as the patient, as you, as the parent to then talk to me about what you're thinking. What do you feel like is right for you or your child or whatever? And then we want to make sure that everyone's safe, of course. But at the end of the day, like if I'm just telling you what to do as a provider, that patient's probably not going to have much respect for me because I'm going to just be breathing down their throat and instilling fear rather than actually having a conversation, you know? Absolutely. And your provider does have an obligation to meet you where you're at. They do have an obligation to help you find something that appeases them and making them feel safe that you and your baby are safe in Mm -hmm. helping you feel Mm -hmm. that you are choosing the right thing for you and your baby. And then for your baby and making sure that that baby is having all their needs met. It truly is it's a shared decision-making. And I think that a lot of times is lost in the hospital system. So what are some things that we can do? Or, and maybe there's not anything, but as someone who is birthing in the hospital, are there things that we need to know or bring with us or have in our mind that we can expect and make our hospital stay postpartum a little bit better when it comes to interacting with lactation support? Yeah, basically just doing your own research and like having a little plan in your head of what you desire when you give birth, like immediate skin to skin, really, unless you want to sleep, your baby should be skin to skin. Of course, people get touched out and then you can hand the baby off to a partner or a family member or whatever. But the best thing is to have that baby skin to skin because the more exposure they get to the chest, the more they're able to just kind of pick their head up and start rooting and they're right there, you know? So doing your own search of what you want as a parent and what you want for your child, as far as feeding. And then I think 
it's important to voice your wants and your desires when you arrive to the hospital. And you might have to say it a couple of times, might be in the labor room, might be in the postpartum room, really voicing what you want. Because sometimes, unless we're kind of really like prodding and trying to get things out of our parents, we don't really know what their goals are. So as a lactation consultant, I always started off as like, what are your goals? What do you feel like you are wanting as far as feeding your baby. And then it kind of opens up the conversation of then they feel a little bit more comfortable telling me what they, in their mind when they are pregnant or even now what they're feeling that they want. So I think just having a conversation and creating a space that feels safe to have those conversations. Right. And I wanted to kind of touch on, I feel like a lot of issues that happen as far as lactation goes, I feel like there's this micro level and this macro level of issues. So like micro level, meaning like a lactation consultant or a nurse is helping a parent and their baby feed, and it might not be going very well. And so I think there's really room for growth as far as like our language and how we interact with patients. I feel like I've found that a lot of people get a little anxious about a feeding and really wanting it to work, whether it's the parent or even the nurse that, or the lactation consultant that's helping them. And so really taking like a little bit of a combo approach and really just kind of like, it's going to be okay. And even if the baby's screaming their head off because they're hungry, teaching the parent how to calm their baby is so empowering because then they're going to go home. And if they're never taught how to calm their baby, they're going to be like, what am I doing? I'm not being a good parent or they feel lost. So kind of meeting patients where they're at, just being calm and having good language, asking to touch their chest before you do. I don't really like to touch people's chest. I like, especially hand expression. I'm obsessed, but I like having them put their hand on their, on their chest. And then I put my hand on top of theirs, things like that. Mm-hmm. And then on the macro level, like a systemic level, there is a severe shortage of lactation consultants in general in the hospital one to two lactation consultants for a 24 to 36 bed unit is not appropriate. So people aren't getting seen. And when they're getting seen, they already are in big trouble. As far as like having a lot of issues, they're being seen on discharge day, trying to put fires out. And then the lactation consultants burnt out because they have this compassion fatigue because they can't give the good care that they can. So they're just like rushing, you know? So then it's this systemic thing of like, we need funding. We need access for lactation consultants who wish to be lactation consultants to get their clinical hours, to have the money to sit for these exams, which are $800. I had to do a GoFundMe <laughs> to sit for my exam. There's, I feel like I'm kind of going all over the place. This is the way, this is the way my brain works, but there's so many layers to the subpar lactation care that some people are getting. And I feel like it depends on the area, depends on the hospital you're in, depends on honestly, like financially, if people can afford it or not, people that can pay out of pocket are way more likely to be able to get a lactation consultant to come to their home than someone who's on Medicare, who it doesn't, it's not covered. And if it is, it's usually in an office. It's difficult to get to an office when you have a two day old, there's so many, so many barriers. So I know that was a lot. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, not at all. But along those same lines, no, we know that people of color and babies of color fare much better when they are seen by providers of color. Do Mm -hmm. we see that same kind of correlation when it comes to breastfeeding? Should black and brown people be having black and brown lactation providers in order to increase their success? You know, that's a great question. I don't have a study to be like, hey, here's a study. Mm -hmm. But anecdotally, absolutely. I think in general, 
whether you have a person of color who is your pediatrician, a person of color who's your OBGYN, a person of color who is your hairstylist, a person of color who is your nail tech, a person of color who is your lactation consultant. If you look like the person that's caring for you, you're much more likely to relate to one another. You have lived experiences of one another. And I'm not going to assume that everyone has the same lived experiences based on your, the color of your skin. Cause I can't do that. Everyone grows up differently, but I can say that I feel like it would be really difficult for a person of color to then just be touched and counseled by someone who doesn't look like them, who doesn't have the same lived experiences with them. Or even there's people that don't look like each other, but also are a little bit more woke to what others are going through or a little bit more empathetic to someone's situation, you know? So I think there's a part of like people that look like each other should be cared for by people that look for, like each other, but sometimes not a, that's not available, but at least the person that's caring for them should at least have an understanding of what they have gone through in their life, at least have an understanding of maybe some barriers that they might go through when they're discharged from the hospital. And how can we like really put equity at the forefront of all of our care, whether it's lactation or OBGYN care or whatever, you know? Absolutely. And if you find yourself in a situation where you have a provider, lactation, nurse, OBGYN, midwife, anybody who doesn't feel aligned to you, and they're certainly not, Mm -hmm. um, you know, woke to your lifestyle or your lived experiences or your culture, if it's possible, and I recognize it's not always possible, but if it is, you should be asking for someone different. Like don't continue to get care from someone Mm. who Feel like absolute garbage or makes you feel like you're a bad parent because you're not. Yeah. I mean, it's tough because when there's only one lactation consultant for the entire unit, you can't just be like, I want another lactation consultant because yeah. it might not be there. So I think that's the important part of prenatal care of finding someone that you can talk to prenatally. I literally have like friends who are IBCLCs who see people prenatally and yeah. will literally do like, they'll be texting them throughout their postpartum stay, like, Hey, this is what's going on. Sometimes they'll FaceTime them just to kind of check the latch real quick, just like out of the kindness of their own heart. It doesn't count as a consult, but that's the importance of having someone that you might've built a rapport with during your pregnancy that you can confide in even through text or call during your hospital stay. If there is no one else available during your stay, you know, and I think through COVID too, like we've gotten to it's there's pros and cons to it, but I think people are more apt to go home right at 24 hours. Once that baby gets their screenings, they can get home as long as everything looks good and they're not having any medical issues. They can get home and maybe see their lactation support or their doula, whoever they're able to see in the outpatient world. But I think it's really difficult to your question as far as like saying, I want another provider. I want another lactation, lactation consultant. It's like, Who's available? Is there anybody that looks like me that's available? Probably not, which is another topic, like the barriers of having a team that's diverse, you know, then also if me personally, I don't really care whether someone fires a nurse and wants another there. I feel like there's something like deeper. I've heard stories of this patient fired me. They want another nurse. I'm like, okay, well then what actually happened here? Like, let's break it down. Let's do a root cause analysis. But uh, then that patient's kind of labeled as like difficult or, you know, and then it's just like, it's this dichotomy of, do I say something might make myself look difficult. And then there's a resistance from the entire floor of staff members, you know? So it's like, maybe, although I wish everyone had the 
the privilege of saying what's on their mind and firing their nurses, asking for a new one and asking for another lactation consultant, maybe try to like keep things cool. (laughs) I don't know if that's the best answer, but then also make sure you have a nice support system for when you get out of that place, you know, and like lessons learned. But I think the most important thing is trying to prevent any of that from happening, you know, as far as, yeah. Nothing burns my buns more than labeling someone difficult because they're simply advocating for mm. better care or care that preach, right? like mm-hmm. baseline what you right. should deserve because you're a human in a hospital. Uh-huh. I literally am the nurse. I am the person that like, I'm given the difficult patient and I go in and like, we're cool. We're chatting. We are literally laughing and everything's good. And I come out, I'm like, y'all, they're just misunderstood. You have to meet someone where they're at and have freaking empathy for people and meet them where they're at. They might be going through something. Who knows what's going on at home? Like, come on, there's more to it. If someone's actively rude or fires you, there's something bigger. You have to understand It's probably not you. Maybe it is you. Maybe you're being a total B. Like maybe you're not being the best nurse that you can be. And maybe that's because we're so short staffed and running around and we aren't able to give good care to, you know, three couplets. We're given five couplets. Like when I'm given five couplets, I'm literally just being like, Hey, you good. Here's your meds. Let me check the vital signs in the baby. Make sure any pees, poops, feeds. Okay. I got to go to my next patient. So, but yeah, it's so complicated, but (laughs) The whole system is just dysfunctional and that sucks because everyone pays the price, right? Like your doctors and providers do pay the price. Your nurses do pay the price. Your patients do pay the price. Patient Mm -hmm. experience pays the price, like patient satisfaction. It all pays the price and it it does suck. So you've kind of segued into something I definitely want to hit on in this conversation. We have a lot of providers and nurses that listen to the podcast, watch our YouTube, follow us on Instagram as a provider. What are some things that nurses, midwives, lactation people, Mm -hmm. doctors can do to make sure that you are giving trauma-informed care Mm. and meeting those patients where they're at? Yeah. So I'm going to talk about two different things. As far as being a provider, I feel like we have an opportunity to, if you're a person that sees patients in the office and then you go to the hospital and then attend deliveries and you catch babies or what have you, I feel like there is so much room for growth as far as like, and not every, I'm not saying that not every provider doesn't create a good rapport, but I think it's so important that we really focus on building these rapports, talking to people about maybe what they've been through in the past. And even on my intakes for new OB patients, We talk about any history of abuse or trauma, any major life stressors, anything that's going on that I should know about that might affect your pregnancy. That is so important. And at my clinical experience, I'm given an hour, which I think is awesome to be with a patient and really kind of dive into their life. And then I can kind of make note of certain things that I'm going to revisit every, every visit that I see them, I'm going to talk to them about whether it is a social issue, any issues with their partner or like a sick child at home or financial stressors, what, what have you. So then you're kind of like in this rapport, you're checking in on them. You actually like care about what they're going through. And then you can really have an idea of maybe some things that might be triggering 
during their birth experience, during their postpartum experience, especially if they have a history of trauma, like maybe they won't tolerate cervical exams. Maybe we'll not do any cervical exams unless they feel pressure and you get consent and you feel like they're going to deliver. Right. Like is cervical exams necessary? Yeah. You know, but I feel like there's so much to talk about that. Okay. So of course, building rapport during pregnancy and really recognizing what patients have been through so that we can really like understand sometimes their pain response during labor and delivery, how to help them cope, making sure that they have a support person that they feel safe with, because sometimes that's not always the truth. Making sure maybe if they have the ability or we can give them resources to even get a grant or, you know, funding for a doula in birth or anything like that, giving them resources so that they're set up for success. And then during the labor delivery postpartum period, again, cervical exams, the way you communicate with people asking for consent, just examples of ways that we can like, don't touch anybody without asking them to touch them, things like that, that you can just reduce and practice with trauma-informed care because There's nothing worse than someone doing a cervical exam on someone and then they're crawling up the bed saying no, and you continue. That is assault, bottom line. So as providers, we have to take a step back and ask, is this cervical exam required to do my job? Not necessarily. Unless that baby's head is coming out, you're going to put sterile gloves on and just catch. Like it's okay. It's also okay to, if they consented for a cervical exam and then they say no, you can stop. And then you just say, we're going to take a pause. So that's just an example of the way that we can practice with trauma-informed care. As lactation, again, asking before touching, I always put my hand on top of someone's hand whenever I'm touching their chest. Sometimes they don't quite get the feel of hand expression. So then sometimes I'll say, is it okay if I try? And then you can try after me. And then I'll kind of show them the press back and the roll forward to really get a good drop of milk. And, you know, sometimes it can be sensitive. So if they say, Ooh, that hurts. I'm stopping right away. Do not continue because sometimes it can be painful to hand express, especially if someone has sensitive nipples. So just some ways to really think about um, how to reduce the trauma that we're, sometimes we are active participants in people's trauma and we have to recognize, we have to prevent it. And how can we do that? And that's like the most simple way to to explain it is like asking for touching, consent, things like that. But then also I understand we all, have to work fast, but like working fast doesn't mean that it's effective. So you might like feel like you're talking really slow or you're taking forever in a patient's room. But sometimes if you are thorough in 10 minutes versus fast in five, you won't be called back to the room. Cause like, say the patient doesn't understand what the provider is saying, then they might call you back later. But if you can do your job and do it well in 15 minutes of education, they might be more apt to understand you. But then also just like meeting them with empathy. It's just so important to meet people where they're at, meet them with empathy. And not every provider is like this, but I feel like I have this ability to kind of read the room. And sometimes I feel like what's going on. And I'm like looking at the partner on the couch, like, oh, did you do something? in my head, but then you kind of make it not so serious, but you're like, okay, what's going on here? Like, how can I help? And really helping patients. And then usually it gives them the permission to start bawling their eyes out and they tell you what's going on. And then you make a plan as far as like, whether it's feeding or their pain, or maybe they're having flashbacks from their delivery experience or whatever. 
And then that's an opportunity to have a conversation and really make a plan with the team of how to then not service recovery, but make things better, you know? Yeah. And then expect things for in the postpartum period, those things that happen in the hospital or feeding issues are definitely going to be something that doesn't just go away by walking through the threshold of the automatic doors in the lobby. They're going to require follow-up. So yeah. Yeah. I have two things. So the first is I always, and these are things that Tranquility by Hehe practices. So this isn't just, you know, all your listeners, we're not medical, but these are things that we do to inform our trauma-informed care is the first Mm -hmm. thing is I always remind my team to ask yourself, is this a belief or a choice that I think is right for this person and I'm trying to put on them? Or is this truly our only option going forward? If it's really our only option, we have no other alternatives, which is like so rare. You pretty much always have another option. Then that's unfortunate. We just have one thing going forward that can get us to your goals. For the most part, there's another alternative. And so That leads me into my second thing, which is just presenting options. Would you like me to show you hand expression and then you do it after me? Or would you like to do it and I talk you through it verbally? Let that parent decide what feels best to them while you're giving them options of, of ways to achieve their goal. The goal doesn't change. The goal is to hand express. How are we going to achieve that goal? Presenting parents with options is the number one way that you can keep them in control of their own experience. But you as the provider have to be willing to look deep inside of yourself and say, hey, you know what? I don't always know what's best for my clients. And so I'm going to put it in their hands. They can choose what they want and I'm going to support them going forward in that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I feel like that is the most important part of being a lactation consultant is presenting options on a platter and letting them choose. And I feel like whether it's hand expression, whether it's if someone has to start pumping, say they're like, I can't pump every two hours. No, no, no. You can just pump after every other feeding. These are the options that you can do. And then also my biggest thing is having parents understand that sometimes it's just feed your baby. I feel like there's a lot of external factors of like, what time did baby latch? How long were you on? Did you do both sides? Relax. It's okay. I'm talking about like providers obsessing over the numbers, obsessing over the stimulation and the time and the blah, 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 like skin to skin, feed your baby. And it's okay to also be hands off as a provider and empowering a patient to latch their baby. I can't deal with people that just want to push on the baby's head and like put them on the breast. I always put my hand on top of a parent's hand and never on the baby's head because that's actually opposite. Like the baby's going to push back onto your head. Mm -hmm. So it's an instinct, like never do that. But like, you know, the, the shoulders slash lower neck and I'm always on top of a parent's hand or even just telling them what to do, like walking them through. There are some parents that are so fresh that they don't even know when I'm verbally instructing, like, okay, now, you know, hold, hold the breast with his hand or have the baby cradle it in your arm and belly to belly. Sometimes they do not learn by just being told they don't learn by verbal explanation. So it has to be hands-on, but it's like, we have to not be rough, really, you know, focus on physiologic positioning laid back skin to skin, belly to belly, things like that, that can really help parents recreate it at home, but also feel empowered that they can do it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, It does. 
And it comes back to how I feel like we're pressured to be fast in these rooms. So then we're going to be just like rough and just get it done, get the baby latched. But that's not always like helpful because I'd rather do it really, really well in one visit. And then they're empowered to then keep latching their baby in that way because they actually grasped how to do it. And then you're least likely to then be called back to that room for latch help. <laughs> and you can see more patients. Does that make sense? So it's a win-win. <laughs> It's like a win for me because they're actually grasping everything that you're saying. And it's a win for them because they're empowered to then really be able to feel like they can do it. And I I involve the partner, the family member. I'm like, see, look how they're doing it. This is, you know, I pull back the cheek. This is what the baby's, you know, mouth should look like. This is what the nipple should look like. You really shouldn't see anything. This is, you see the vibration of the breast. That's the baby kind of, you know, really bringing the breast tissue into the mouth and things like that. And I have the partner take a picture. This is the positioning. So when you're home and you're like, wait, how did Becky have me do it? And you see like the setup, whether I put a pillow underneath their elbow or whatever, it's just helpful to kind of involve the whole village too. So that everyone feels like they have a part in it, you know? Totally, man, this has been so helpful. Okay. My final question to you is about financial support. So Mm -hmm. is it true that everyone's insurance does have to cover lactation visits? How often do we find that facilities have free or community-based breastfeeding Mm -hmm. or nursing support groups, things like that? Great question. So, I mean, legislatively, Yes, all insurance companies are supposed to cover lactation. It is very, very difficult. If anybody that works for insurance companies are listening, call me. <laughs> y'all need to get it together. <laughs> for real, I'm over it. I literally have gray hairs. The only reason why I have gray hairs is because of insurance companies. I'm just kidding. But <laughs> kind of. Kind of. But yes, I mean, there are certain insurance companies that are fantastic. They cover like six to eight postpartum visits. They cover wow. some prenatal visits. So really you want to know what your insurance covers. Granted, I have had patients who will call their insurance company and be like, Hey, do you cover lactation? Do you cover breast pumps? And they're like, no, we don't. And realize they actually do, but whoever they're talking to doesn't know, you know? So it's really difficult to actually find the truth, but the best thing is to then find a lactation consultant and see if they cover your insurance and they will be able to tell you. But as far as resources, depends on your insurance, depends on your location. So your best bet is to go on ilka.org, search your zip code, and you can find a local lactation consultant. Usually people that are doing like private practice or have an outpatient clinic, they will have themselves listed and you can find someone in your area. A lot of times providers, whoever you get your OBGYN care, your midwifery care with already has like a list of lactation consultants that they utilize. So totally, you know, tap into that, that list to actually do a prenatal visit with them, get some, you know, education prior to giving birth. And then you have someone, if you like them or not, or you just want to kind of like shop around, you have someone that you've contacted prior to giving birth and then can call for lactation visits afterwards. If people use WIC, some WIC offices have lactation support there. There is an app called Pacify. They cover certain states. They do the audio and video visits. It's an app that people that have Medicaid can use and it's free. I think there's only certain states, but they can use, but also that's something that you can get a monthly membership and then utilize unlimited as well. And then a lot of hospitals have support groups through the hospital. A lot of like private organizations will have um, support groups. So it's really like kind of doing your research. I don't have one 
good answer because I think that's also a barrier. It's like, you know, really having the, the really like the mainstream or like the easiest way to find resources in lactation. But I think that's the best, those are the best ways to find it through your provider, ilka.org, different apps on your phone, websites that you can utilize. And then I would also say, I mean, we need systemic change as far as like access to lactation care, both on the patient side and also the provider side. I feel like there are so many people that want to be lactation consultants, but it's really difficult to become one whether it's being able to afford the education, you need like 90 hours of education through a university or online program. And then you have to find an already established IBCLC to be your preceptor, depending on the pathway. So there's different pathways that you can go through. You need anywhere from 300 to like 1500 clinical hours, like absolutely outrageous. And then the exam is very, very expensive. So it's a very valuable resource yet it's so hard to obtain. And I think that's, it's just, we need more lactation support because we know that the more people that can give their milk to their babies, it will help improve their own health and their baby's health for years and years to come. And it's generational. So why not invest in it now? Absolutely. I always (laughs) think about what would our country look like if we did things the right way? And I feel like I say this at least once a day, but one day our country will do the right thing and we will have all these supports set up and parents will really be set up to flourish from Mm -hmm. day one. Right now, that's not our reality. And I'm really grateful and excited to have people like you in this round with me and sharing this space on the internet to make sure that these barriers are starting to be crushed and that this access Mm -hmm. is starting to be much more widely available to everyone who needs it. Becky. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. This was absolutely (laughs) amazing. This is such a good chat. Thank you so much for being here with me. Now I told people about your Instagram nurse, Becky, is there anywhere else people can connect with you or things that you offer for lactating people? Yeah. So I feel like nurse Becky is the best place to visit. You can always DM me if you have any questions. I don't give like personal medical advice, but I will be like in like six to eight weeks graduating from graduate school. And then I'll have some time to breathe and then hopefully revamping my website for lactation and all things OBGYN slash midwifery care going forth. So once I can kind of like catch my breath from graduation, um, stay tuned everyone. Oh my gosh, you guys, I hope that you're walking away from this conversation, feeling empowered, knowing where that you can find some more resources and feeling prepared to go into the hospital and kind of take control of your breastfeeding and nursing journey. We will see you again next week on the birth launch podcast. Until then, take care. Bye y'all. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I truly do value this community and I love hanging out with you. If you found today's episode helpful, share it with a friend. Share it with someone who might also find this information helpful. I'd love to hear what you have to say and read your sweet words on iTunes. You can leave us a review and this helps get this information into the hands of parents who might also benefit from hearing it. If you're interested in joining The Birth Lounge, you can go to thebirthlounge.com. Our blog is linked there. You can find all sorts of free information as well as how to get your access to The Birth Lounge. You can always hang out with me on Instagram as well, at Tranquility by Hee Hee. Until then, 
Stay educated, stay supported, stay confident. Hey there, just a friendly reminder that nothing in this podcast is to be used as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult your healthcare provider with any questions or concerns you have about your health or anything discussed in this podcast. Side effects may include educated adults, informed decision-making skills, and consensual care. Tranquility by Hehe and the Birth Lounge are not responsible for any ideal births that were created with this podcast. The birth parent deserves all the credit.